Hello and welcome everybody to What Would The Smart Party Do? And this week we're going to be talking about OSR. Perhaps even what OSR stands for, because I'm not sure I know, to be honest. But it's not just me and Baz. Hello, Baz. Hello, mate. How you doing? I'm doing very well. Excited about this podcast because we've got another special guest on. Say hello, Dan. Hello there. Who's our OSR expert, or at least that's what I'm labelling him because <laughs> me and Baz aren't experts by any chalk. Although I think Baz has got a bit more experience than me. So why don't we start off with uh, with Baz then? Tell us what you think OSR is, and then we'll bring in the real expert to tell us why you're wrong. Okay, right. So for those of you who don't know, let me introduce our special guest, um, a little bit more so we've got we're lucky enough to have with us for this week's what would the smart party do we got dan sell uh who's an old mate of mine from way back and dan sell does a couple of things which he could talk about himself in a bit i'm sure but if you are anything to do with the osr you might be aware of the undercroft which is one of those zines that fly around the scene every now and again and it's um it's good stuff um i'm honored enough to have a few copies myself and uh, it's old-fashioned paper stuff with writing on and pictures in all about games so dan publishes that and um i'll let him speak for himself in a minute but uh, just to try and answer gaz's question straight off the bat oh this is a minefield um i i know that it stands for old school uh revolution or renaissance or revival i think the r moves about all the time it's it's a tricky one this because everyone i think has a different definition of the osr and that includes the people inside it as well as outside it but i think let's keep it simple it's about playing vintage games in a style that some people would consider to be vintage from the dawn of the hobby systems wise it tends to be tsr era games and specifically D, to be honest there's not much of that i can see for stuff like gangbusters or buck rogers or stuff like that so it's you know it's it's, it's what it sounds like it's um is generally D&D in the way it was played in the very late 70s perhaps or or even into the early 80s probably nothing beyond um, 1983 and certainly nothing to do with Wizards of the Coast and it's it's as much about publishing and being part of a scene and DIY ethics perhaps as much as it is about going into dungeons and having graph paper it's a pretty complicated beast and i think everyone's got their own definition and i kind of look at it like i look at pornography trust me on this one it's difficult to define but i kind of know it when i see it okay good answer Buzz. so dan you're a resident expert what do you think osr is Jeez. well the r is definitely renaissance and everyone who disagrees is entirely wrong and i'm entirely right but uh yeah i don't know um yeah what baz says works i mean i just i, I turned up to it quite late two years ago maybe it was never like a like a big pull for me to come into this I just lots of people doing lots of interesting things and I wanted to do interesting things too it was nothing really about nostalgia for me although it seems to be that's a big part of it for many did you not grow up on D&D then is that not why you first is this your entry point into the hobby then no I mean I've been playing roleplay games uh, on and off forever uh, I think I got one of those TSR made a, a weird kind of almost Dungeons and Dragons board game thing, a bit like Hero Quest, and that was what that was the first thing I got for it. But um, yeah, no, I didn't really seriously start playing it in early two thousands, really. So there's no nostalgia in it, really. From I think all I had was was like a Planescape box that I got from a Virgin Megastore, and that was my uh, entire exposure to Dungeons and Dragons. I remember the Virgin Megastore as well. I bought many a bargain from there. Yeah. If you can say Virgin Megastore, it counts as nostalgia as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> there'll, be, there'll be a lot of our loyal listeners kind of, you know, stroking their beards at this stage, wondering about, like, the old times on Oxford Street and flicking through role-playing products as if they were vinyl records. Mm. I mean, that, that touches a few buttons for me. But 
But it is interesting, Dan, because out of all the attractors for the OSR, a big one for me is nostalgia. And I know it isn't for everyone, and you're living proof of that. But it's a big one for me because, you know, sometimes I get that urge to get back to the basics of what I was doing in the early 80s when things were much simpler in, in, in many ways. And I had all the time in the world and long summers and lots of graph paper and wax crayons to put in my dice. That's a big draw for me. And I'm sure it must be for loads of people who do OSR stuff, certainly looking at the demographics of people on G+. So it, it, I, I don't know if it's if it's super unusual, but I can't imagine there's too many guys have got into the OSR in the last few years. Um, well, I don't, I, oh, go on, Dan. Well, no, I was just gonna say, like, there are definitely there are definitely some who are kind of uh, younger people, my age and down, that haven't really weren't really the age to, to get into Dungeons and Dragons. Even I'm a little bit too young to have got into Dungeons and Dragons around the time that it was a, a big thing. But I think it's just the, the, the density of activity is it's quite attractive to people who want to make things in an environment where people can respond to it without any kind of... Like, if you're making a full game, then you've got to have that whole kind of explanation and there's there's many steps to go through before you get to the uh, interesting meat of it. Where here you can just throw something out and there's all these people who already understand all the boring bits of it. So is it the, the easy access then and the fact that you can, it's going back to the basics in terms of um, just letting your imagination fly then, you can just chuck whatever in and you've got this kind of lightweight system underneath it, just kind of rattles along and everybody understands it and got the shorthand for it. And it's more about the cool stuff that you're doing rather than what dice you roll or anything like that. For years I was I was caught up in, in like buying new games and like trying them out with the group and then that's not working, buy another game. And just this constant conveyor belt of new systems trying to do new things. And it wasn't until uh, until I got a box set of Lamentations at Dragon Meat or something. I just picked it up because the, the, the cover of the Grindhouse box was quite cool. And uh it just worked. It was it wasn't it wasn't um demanding. It didn't really have anything to say. It was just simple and easy and we could it clicked and we could get into it. And we'd played 3.5 a bit before, so we had the kind of the, the basic understanding of what was going on here. But you just cut away all the crap, all the things that have annoyed us in the past. Lamentations is bonkers. Uh, this is Lamentations of the Flame Princess. Mm. For those of you reading along at home, uh, which is, I'll see if I can summarise the position of it. It's um, it, it's basically it's a clone of Basic and Expert D and D from Moldvay and Cook back in the day. Um, uh, but it's been rewritten and it's been tarted up and it's got a few house rules bunged in there and I suppose the significant changes some of the magic spells have been moved about which doesn't sound like a big deal but that's a fundamental part of the D&D experience and, and, and actually the interesting thing about Lamentations of the Flame Princess is that as a rule set it's, it really hasn't diverged from old school D&D particularly at all but it's as a game line is much bigger than its rule set and there's all of the scenarios and all of the campaign stuff and the settings and and the stuff that's come down the pipe since that that book came along and that box and various different ways it's been presented that's where lamentations is really at and and at that stage you're dumping a whole bunch of horror and a whole bunch of weirdness and and a really strong aesthetic look to the whole piece as well which which makes it about as far away from keep on the boardlands as you could possibly imagine but is that a fair summary? I mean, it's it's like you say that it's moved. It it's just uses D and D as kind of like the Rosetta Stone, and then goes off on its on its own weird death spiral. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a rule set. I mean, I, I don't want to like speak a I'm sure you'd be 
you know, he's got plenty to say on himself. But like, it's not the rules itself are just a convenience for this kind of curation of content that he's got going on. Like, like you said, all the meat is in the other stuff. The rules are just there as a common starting point that everyone can move into everything else from without any confusion. Mm. Yeah, and but it's it, I do think it's kind of odd because it, the stuff that that comes out of there now looks because oh, just to go right back to the early eighties again is I, I moved away from D and D after a few years like like an awful lot of my peers did and a game I went to was Warhammer Fantasy because I'm British and it was around and and that seems to have way more parallels in the stuff that Lamentations is doing these days so for an old school game it, there's a slight disconnect there as to as to why it would use D and D and. And in the opening statement, I sort of brought up the, what I see as the fact is that OSR is pretty much exclusively D&D, which is potentially a bit of a shame because there's plenty of other stripped back or or uh, Rosetta Stone type games out there that, that don't seem to get as much attention. Sorry, guys, I, I know I cut across you there, mate. I think you're just about to say something. Well, I think I'm, I'm interested in what some of the attractors are or features because I, I really like the Lamentations of the Flame Princess art. I love all the pictures. Um, there's a great one of them coming out of a keep, and they've lost a you know one's lost a leg, one's lost an eye, but they're dripping in all these jewels and crowns and all the rest of it. And it really summed up the kind of what it would be like to stagger out of that dungeon at the end, having killed all the monsters and got your treasure and be low on hit points. And it's a picture we've never seen in I don't know twenty or thirty years of gaming. I've never seen anything like that. Uh, and a lot of the stuff's really evocative and nice, but the content inside doesn't seem to have a lot to it. And certainly from I like rules, but rules wise, it doesn't have, seem to have a lot. So I was curious about Lamentations because um, you guys obviously probably got a better handle than me but the only thing I know about it is things like um, dog smuggling uh, and sewing the ends off spears and there was basically stuff like I think the equipment lists have been chucked together basically and, had some, and you had a rural and an urban environment and I can't remember which way around it was but I think um, staves were more expensive than spears in one environment than the other so you buy loads of spears and then sew the ends off and sell them as quarter staves in the next in the other environment and dogs are more expensive in one than the other so you kind of go out to the wilds and smuggle loads of dogs back into a city because you can make a profit you know obviously within a game you wouldn't do that but it was interesting that the first sort of things that were flagged up to me were not any cool things about the same particularly it was how the equipment list was priced wrong (laughs) so do do you get what what's kind of like for something like lamentation to say that as a first example then what what are the main selling points of that apart from dog smuggling um, I, that didn't even occur to me, the uh, the criminal listening. But then, um, to be honest, I, I don't know the game as well as some of my players do. To be honest, I just I, m- I make the games and run the games, and uh, they always bring up rules I've missed. So then, I don't think they're that important. It's more that you're the reason that Lamentations is attractive is because it's got someone behind it who is uh, so forceful and energetic and he's constantly pushing and making things and it's alive it's it's different than just going back to the old dungeon dragon stuff because this thing is is it's you know still vibrant going to new places so it's having new content i think having new content is a thing that keeps it interesting it's not so much just content as well because the content that gets put out isn't just like for the sake of it like a lot of the other um clones or whatever you want to call them they do just like put do the old tsr thing of um, like bringing supplement after supplement out, basically just yeah. numbering them, and there's a load of them. But every lamentations thing is distinct, and it is a product of the person who made it as well, which is which is important. Um, so, if anything, it's the way he runs his business, which is the influential and attractive thing. 
and that's 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 one of the attractors to OSR generally, isn't it? There's a there's a whole bunch of personalities in there, and um, and it's kind of tribal too, as sometimes the best things are. You know, when you've got somebody to follow and someone's works to follow, um, and that that's just as true in the indie game spectrum or the story game spectrum or whichever chunk of the hobby you want to pick. Um, but there's there's some personalities in the OSR, and 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 if you find some work that you like, and Lamentations is is a great example. That's like a stable. Uh, of really quality writers and artists who've all got an individual bespoke vision then there's there's uh there's gold to be mined out of it, isn't it there's plenty to keep you occupied yeah i, I like the kind of uh the splatbo thing that you mentioned there dan i remember one of the lines was it something like quintessential guide to and then you had quintessential part two and it's like oh. <laughs> the first one wasn't very quintessential then was uh, it? The, the irony's lost <laughs> but um all right so, so another feature then or something that i've I've seen to notice is lethality. So a lot of people seem to revel in the fact that sooner or later you're going to open the wrong jar and have to serve versus death, or you've only got a few hit points and die quite often. And when talking about characters and things like that, a lot of other people I've chatted to online seem to be of the opinion like, well, if you die, just make a new character. What's the problem? Mm. So is it is it played? Do you think broadly more like a more of a board game, and you don't care so much about character or anything because that's the way the system kind of represents itself for? Is that a, an unfair view that I've got just from speaking to nerds online? <laughs> I I guess a lot of people have their own interpretation of how the game works, but uh, for me at least, the the lethality makes the characters more interesting. I mean, obviously you could you could. That's the good thing about Dungeons and Dragons is you can. It's one of those games where you can coast in a week if you want. If you're turning up to a game, you don't feel like it, you're tired. You can just kind of sit there and just say, yeah, hit it, hit it, hit it, and that's fine. No one's enjoyment is particularly affected by by you sucking for a while. But um, but yeah, no, the lethality thing. I think knowing that this this person that you're you're playing as could die in an incredibly casual and just sudden way, uh, just adds to the to the enjoyment. Just that you know this thing isn't you're not protected in any way. The the, the GM's not going to to you know say oh well yeah it was like close to your ear you're just concussed. It's like, no, it went through your head, you're dead. Sorry, make another one. Yes, that character was amazing. Yes, we all love it. We'll be very sad he's gone, but he's dead. And I think that's good. I, I enjoy that. I know I've, I've had players um, that are resistant to that, but they like they, they, they warm up to it eventually. Making lots of characters. It's even well, they then. get callous to all the death, I guess. <laughs> well, I, don't, I don't kill people that often. I mean, it's, it's enough for them to know, I think, that, they, that I will kill them, um, and I don't care. That I'll kill them. It's like if 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 they get to a position where they should be ki- be killed. I didn't like you know they uh, they should be killed. Not like I've deliberately gone and killed them, but you know they get stabbed in combat and they die, and it's not very exciting. And there's this character you've had for years that has died for nothing. Yeah, but if they if they get to their point, then that's a that's a good thing to have. It's nice to have that tension in the background, even if it doesn't come up that much. You know, it's a real threat, and it increases your enjoyment. I feel, mm-hmm. but yeah, this, 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 may disagree. I was going to say the other thing then is, do you get people who like the characters so much they want to retire them? Do they get to a point where they've accumulated enough wealth or whatever, and they just don't want they don't want them to die down some dark dungeon <laughs> or in an alley by a random stab or a rusty nail that gives them septicemia? They're like, I really like this character, and he's going to go buy a farm and, and never adventure again. <laughs> I have had people retire before, but that's usually because of them, like. Uh, like going back to the like, Warhammer thing, you know, like characters in Warhammer Fantasy, they, you, they sometimes they just wouldn't die. You just become a, a human potato. You just have nothing left. You're just a lump. 
being wheeled around. And yeah, sometimes characters have got to that point and they've been retired to be whatever it is that human potatoes do. Uh, and sometimes people have just wanted a new character that they've been too good and too successful and they they thought it was time for another one. But um, no, I don't think anyone's been been particularly precious about them in any games I've run. If anything, I mean people people talk about the characters who have died more than the characters who survived. It's um it's a strange thing about some of the stuff that I see in the OSR, or for, actually opinions about the OSR from people who don't play it and don't don't immerse themselves in it is that it's often conflated with chasing kobolds around in corridors. Well, that's that's one end of it, and low-level D&D is its own thing, really, I think. But original, old-school D&D, the way that I remember it when it wasn't old-school and it was just school, was just as much about playing fairly high-level stuff. And it took you a while to get there, don't get me wrong. We never really cheated and started at level 15 or anything else like that. But, you know, basic went up to level 36, and it went there for a reason. And, and once you start flinging around wish spells and building strongholds and stuff like that, it becomes a very, very different game. And that's just as old school um, experience-wise. You, you don't tend to see so much of it. It does, does tend to concentrate at the lower levels with the published stuff that you see out there. And, and that's for a reason because, you know, clearly that's where people start. And I think that is probably a part of doing the authentic original experiences to start low and claw your way out of the gutter. And, and you know, very often you might not make it. Um, but that high level play is a, is a very D and D thing to go from zero to hero. Mm. One you don't see so much, perhaps, but it's definitely an aspect. Yeah, I've never experienced that level of play in any of my games. To be they, uh, the amount of time involved is is astronomical to get up to like uh, anything reasonable. I think my longest running uh, campaign, which was going for I don't know, a couple of years, maybe. I think everyone got to level six in that, <laughs> and they were very grateful for that. But uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what I would do if people got up to that level. I don't know if it would change very much because with lamentations they don't have the old uh, the wish spells and stuff. And I mean, and, and what can a rogue do with with six in every skill? They're not going to be bringing down governments with it necessarily. So I don't think it would change significantly. I think I think I don't know, but I think I could run a game with a level one character and a level twenty character side by side, and it wouldn't be too outrageous. Mm. I think. In in Lamentations, at least, I I don't know. Yeah, I, I suspect that's pretty Lamentation specific, to be honest, mm. because you know D and D, and specifically D and D, has always worked in tiers, um, for want of a better phrase. Sometimes it's a phrase they've used in the game rules themselves, but you know the old basic sets would be a good way of looking at it. You had level one to three, which was your original basic set, and you were in the dungeon for that, and then up to level fourteen, you were in the wilderness, and eventually you were an immortal and. And, and definitely all through the history of D&D there's been those levels where you've got epic at one end and you've got scrabbling around fighting goblins at the other um, and, and that's absolutely fine I think there's four or five different well I was going to say four or five there's probably 40 or 50 hundred different ways of playing D&D um, at various levels the OSR seems to stick down towards the lower level end and I think I think that's, that's just uh, for a matter of convenience to be honest it's certainly a lot easier to write for if you're publishing stuff it's way easier to write at the lower levels than it is the high levels but you know but to to move move that on a bit i think one of the really interesting things about the osr publishing scene that i've seen is the amount of creativity that is applied to dungeoneering or you know a level two adventure there's some absolutely mad stuff out there where people are playing inside the bodies of dead gods and there's all kinds of strange stuff happening in space 
and it's not just like an alien shows up with a ray gun but there's some real serious twists to what you would well it just doesn't stack up next to keep on the borderlands and isle of the unknown and isle of dread it's just there's some bonkers stuff and it's really creative and it's incredible to see that coming out of a 40 year old rule set the fact that everyone's got this in common it allows everyone to just to get on with doing the more high concept stuff rather than having to worry about the fundamentals all the time i think Mm. that's what it is that's got to this point of uh kind of you know creative energy that's going on Mm. Um, so yeah and you've and I, and I mentioned that because, like I said in the intro, Dan, you've got your zine, you've got the Undercroft. Mm. Is it four issues out now, or five, something like uh, that? We're about to put out the seventh. Oh, blimey, I missed a couple. Yeah, and the eighth is uh, is ready to to kind of get going around Christmas, so it's all going. Okay, so so what led you to doing a a, a paper and cardboard and ink version? of something that you know the internet kind of solved a long time ago and <laughs> you've got old school in your old school there and and clearly you've got contributors as well so yeah. there's other people out there who like to send you stuff on paper and, and for you to type it up what's, what's the matter yeah. with you man it's um again I, I have no nostalgic feelings towards zines at all i've i probably never even seen one up until i made one so uh there's no there's nothing nostalgic about it for me it was just um, an obvious thing to do. I saw, I can't remember who it was, uh, it was either Tim Shorts or someone else, who um, put up a, a little guide on just how to put them together physically. Like, you know, you do this, you fold it, you, you nail it down, then you've got your zine. And I'm looking at it, and that's really easy. I can do that. So I did. And um, first one I did on my own with uh, a university friend adding some stuff in for me, and then it just went from there. Yeah, it was just, it's just uh, it was a bit of fun that went quite well anyway listen i was around when zines were around in the 80s okay yours looks just like those so i don't know how you've done that by accident it is marvelous stuff Mm. and the one difference you've got between the original old school zines is you've made it to issue eight those guys (laughs) never got beyond issue three that's what i keep getting told i decided (laughs) if i get to level 10 i can declare myself the winner Um, well you'll be lord level (laughs) and you'll play high level fanzine production yeah it will i will i will progress I'm already getting ready. Glossy cover then. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm gonna go full color and just—it'd be great. It'd be amazing. People <laughs> will kneel to my uh, my double-digit powers. But there, yeah. there is a, there's a, there's a nice piece to the physical artifact, though, isn't there? Mm. And uh, that's an that's an OSR thing, you know, for people to to look for like really, you know, we were talking about lamentations earlier. Just to go back to that for a minute, really beautifully produced books. If nothing else, you know, the physical artifact that you get from that. And then your stuff, which is a labour of love and done by hand with staples and hot ink. Yeah. Uh, and there are people doing incredible maps and just getting all the way back to the craft element of the hobby rather than the the other end of it. I mean, because you, you can do gaming with absolutely nothing these mm. days, not even a pencil. Um but to, to bring back that craft as well, it does seem to go hand in hand with it quite nicely. You don't tend to see that level of craft with the newer stuff. Story games, for example, and I don't mean to denigrate them at all. You would, you would rock up and and uh, and you would just talk, and there, there's nothing else necessarily needed apart from maybe the obvious paraphernalia. But there doesn't seem to be so much craft at that end of the spectrum. Maybe I'm talking nonsense. I don't know. No, yeah, I suppose that I, I don't know for a fact, but yeah, it doesn't feel like there's that many places. That have this kind of uh, paper thing going on, but um, I think they're important because 
things you put online, put in your blogs, put in your Google Pluses, they're they're temporary. They're going to disappear. And even like your best blog posts and your best blogs are eventually going to just you know go away. But a, a print thing, you're gonna you're gonna have that. That's a thing that you'll have. I mean, in 30 years, people will still have copies of the Undercroft on their shelf. I mean, in 30 years, people are probably not going to be reading my blog. <laughs> These things are going to continue existing, and uh, again, like they might turn up. You might be able to get a, an undercroft at a boot sale one day. Someone's going to pick it up and be like, "Ooh, what's this?" Just like I've done with with many books I've got on my shelves that I would never have seen just because I saw them. They looked interesting, and I bought them for twenty p from someone's table out in the field. And you can't do that with with your online things. Put committing it to paper is is making it permanent, and uh, it is it is engaging in a more traditional side of of, of making things. These are physical artifacts, and I think as well that the the fact that I I make them by hand mostly uh, is is good as well. It's like um, there's a physicality to each one of them. Like if you know where this thing has come from, you 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 have that feeling of uh, it's more personal, more uh, yeah, more personal. Like each one of them will have a have a have a poorly applied stamp in it, which is which can be. There's a reason why I put them in there. Those are because I've got a little rubber stamp that I stick in them to to mark them as authentic. Um, it's so that you look at that and you know for a fact that this was made by a person who's got really bad aim. It's, there's no mm. way this could have been printed <laughs> by a machine. Um, and I'm I'm planning to do some more things with that as well. I want it to be more obvious that this is a physical um, labor that you're holding, not just some mass produced. Thing. I like the fact that you're stamping them for authenticity in case there's like a some guy out there trying to copycat you and steal your sales away with <laughs> yeah, his own. That, into, that didn't occur to me until uh, a friend of mine pointed that out that it would actually this is actually relatively useful against piracy. Like, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, initially, I was just putting it on there to be weird and to buy, I have an excuse to buy a rubber stamp because I mean, who doesn't want to have a rubber stamp? <laughs> As soon as those Chinese factories get hold of a master copy, you're doomed. <laughs> See, that's why I've got to do them messily as well. It's really hard to read them in most of them. So. There's a, a story from the Hot War guys when they did a, a little supplement and they had loads of artifacts. And I, I'm like, yeah, I like artifacts in games as well as uh, about games. So they had like these little briefing documents and envelopes and all the rest of it and did all the tea studies and, and with some of them wanted to burn around the edges and all that kind of thing. And the guy's going to set the bedroom on fire because one of the sheets just went up, and there was two guys running around the bedroom <laughs> screaming, and this flaming ball of documents in the middle of a bedroom floor. Yeah, it's, it's things like that that add a bit of character to it. I think. Yeah, they. If it's anyone supplements for hot war smell of smoke, that's why. Ah, it definitely adds to the enjoyment of them. I think. So, so taking it forward from the crafting thing, the, the couple of things I wanted to just sort of ask, well, both of you really about old school stuff or your experiences of it is. I see there's kind of like two tracks and one track is um, the DIY ethic where you are getting your notes out, your bits of paper, your keyed maps and you can be putting as much craft into those as you want I guess and you could be illustrating them and, and making stuff and having at the table artifacts and there's a real little hobby industry that you, the GM would be doing in between sessions but then on the other side you've got uh, an awful lot of publishable material that you can use to run games for the OSR now there's probably more adventures available now than there was when TSR was punting them out at a frightening rate um, and some of them are really really good quality too and, and very cheap so 
I see those sort of two tracks moving ahead. And, and if I wanted to be uh, an OSR DM or GM, you know, I seem to be able to have those two sort of branches to call on. You know, is there an expectation that, that in the old school you would produce your own stuff? Because there does seem to be an element of that. But at the same time, for that you could drop a fiver and have more material than you could possibly run in your lifetime. And you could be taking people through somebody else's experience. Um, what do you think, guys? One of the things I've seen that's quite popular is um, certainly Vornheim and that kind of product. His lists of tables of stuff and generations uh, a generator for game ideas. So rather than having published adventures, what I've witnessed being more popular in OSR circles tends to be a hundred things you find on a dead body. Or uh, I'm going to run a game tonight. What are you know what a ten high priest going to look like? So I can pick one and that sort of thing. And it seems more of a um, a community idea generator on the whole rather than I think people buying Keep on the Borderlands and then the second one in the series and then the third one in the series mm. I, I've got a very limited view but what I witness happening seems to be more about give me gameable ideas and then we'll go away and amongst our little group make something out of that what do you think Dan? Uh, I generally don't like the uh, well, no, I like big lists of things big lists of things are great but like as a, as a practical kind of using it to make games thing I just I don't use for whatever reason I haven't really uh, it's not really a conscious choice I just don't use them uh, I like if I'm going to use other people's stuff I like to use them whole cloth just to not mess with them as much as possible because if you're if you're going to uh, uh, grab an adventure it's fun to have have this, this this second game master or whatever you want to call them at your table with you so if I was running I don't know whatever uh, fancy supplement there'll be things in it that I wouldn't do there'll be ways of doing it that I wouldn't think of and I think that's, in, that's an important experience for you to have especially if you're not playing in lots of other game masters games it's, it's really good to have that uh, that resource so do you feel a kind of um, I said, do, you, do you feel then like you've got some you're kind of honour bound almost to to hold on to someone else's ideas because they've put the time into it much the same as you want someone to read your fanzine in hold, you want them inserting the wrong pages or something, or tearing pages out. Does it feel like a kind of uh, an honourable craft amongst all the OSR gems, do you think, that they, they want to hold on to the ideas that someone else has created and use them as they are, because that's something that's you know a valuable asset in itself? R- rather than you just being a uh, bit lazy. I don't, I don't know, I can't speak for anything else. <laughs> <laughs> well, laziness is definitely something to do, and it is nice to be able to be lazy sometimes. But yeah, no, I don't, I don't think there's anything precious about other people's ideas i mean if you want to rip them to pieces and, and steal from them you should uh it's a good thing to do i just think uh purely for the whole having a second voice at your table this this magic voice from the past is the important bit but if you don't like it, i mean I've, i have had scenarios where it's, i've been like it's it's the day of the game and i haven't done any work and i need something because i grab something and sometimes the thing you grab is kind of crap so you gotta you gotta make your edits on the page but uh, if they're good, I think you should use them. I think you, you, that's how that's how you can learn. It's hard to learn if you're the only source of things. Sure. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting point because I, I, one of the one of the things that I think the OSR specifically might struggle with, um, and and I'll just throw this up there from a, from a sort of devil's advocate point of view is, I think old school gaming is really dependent upon the GM. I mean, Dan, you mentioned earlier that with D&D, it's perfectly acceptable to coast as a player, and I can totally see that, and I've I've totally done it. Um, It's not a problem. You're absolutely right. It it can accommodate those players very well. But in old-school GMing, 
you've you've really got to be pretty good. I think your old school experience is 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 not completely dependent upon the GM. But if you've got a bad GM, your old school game, I don't even think is really going to get off the ground. I think it would be incredibly painful. Whereas a quality GM will make it absolutely sing and dance. Now you might say that's true of all games, but I think it's really really important in old school because you don't have a necessarily a huge amount of rule stuff to fall back on you don't have a huge amount of processes or you can't just go let's start a combat because that'll give me an hour off because it won't it'll give you two minutes off won't yeah. it really with old school gaming i mean i think you've got to be on your game and and even if you are just grabbing modules off the shelf you've got to do some preparation i think there is still some craft even at that level i don't think you can just afford to be adequate as an old school gamer and i think that maybe there are some modern systems that give you an awful lot more assistance and and get you get a decent game out of you even if you're not on fire that day no i, I yeah i'm not the best person to talk to about being good as a gm i panic constantly when making games and running games i'm always struggling to to uh just get them out the door and going so uh, for me old school games are no difference to any other games i i I panic and obsess about them as much as I would about the easiest one to run. So maybe uh, I don't have that perspective <laughs> to see that. Yeah, maybe I think if you panic about your games, that probably means you are a good GM because <laughs> that's coming from a caring place, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like like because you know you. Well, I don't know. You, I know that really the players like if you, if you're playing with people you know that they're, they're not going to be like on you and like that shit. That's terrible. Why are you doing that? That's dumb. They don't really care. You can you can be a bit awful and and you can let it slide. And if you got like I, I generally play with with players who are very willing kind of uh, riff on things and just, just be a bit silly and play about a bit. Mm. So I mean that's helpful. Like I don't do combat so much because I don't like running combat. It's boring, rolling all those dice and stuff. And and like you said, it doesn't fill up enough time to make it worth it as a distraction mm. while you're desperately trying to make something. But like throwing them something weird, like it, it's like cats. You know, you just throw them throw them a ball covered in feathers, and they'll be they'll be at it for hours. <laughs> I want to I want to poke it. I want to taste it. What does it do? What is this? And you don't have to do anything. That that kind of stuff. I don't know if that's an old school thing or just me. Uh, but I, I feel that is that is something common throughout the game. How about you, guys? What's your take on this from a sort of GMing craft point of view? I think I don't know. Like the the sort of couple of games I've played uh, of OSI stuff seem to have like there'll be features. There won't just be a cavern. There'll be a cavern with a, a pile of mouldy vegetation in one corner, and instantly it's like, right, what's that? Is there something in it? Is there something we can steal? Is someone going to try and get us? Like what's that result of? Who left it there? And the, the, I think that it might be—I don't know if it's a function of the you might die soon, or you got to be really careful, or cautious, or whatever. But it seems to generate a lot of curiosity and wariness and interest out of players. That and if you find some jars, and people immediately want to have a look at them and taste them and smell them and see if they're poison or acid or the elixir of the gods or something. So I think I agree with Dan to the degree that those sort of games seem to generate more just from having stuff you throw features out there players seem more happy to try and do stuff with it and interact with it and press it see what happens or get someone else to press it preferably so that they don't get to the, the, the fallout from it um, but from generally as a, a craft point of view I don't know I've probably not played enough OSR games or read enough of the adventures but um, I've read Raphael Chandler's uh, No Salvation for Witches for example which was very nicely produced by James Ruggie again 
but the, there wasn't really a lot in there per se but it was quite similar to a lot of um, the way I do convention games at the minute in terms of having a setup stuff's going to happen you kind of run a bit of a clock if the players don't do anything things will occur and you know the world will end or whatever and there's different areas and locations to go and do stuff with the characters with their own motivations or what they're up to and they just throw players at it and then the, the adventure really comes out of players interacting with the GM and stuff that's happening but without it being a defined plot or having to go from A to B to C necessarily or any of that kind of stuff so I think some of it does rely on the GM having that ability to improvise or keep several plates spinning and that kind of thing but you know I don't know I feel, I feel a bit of a sham trying to speak for OSR because I've not played that much of it. Have you had any uh, experiences? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, loads. I mean, I, I, I think you're absolutely both bang on the money there because I think a lot of, and I can't speak for all of it clearly, I wouldn't even try, but a lot of old school gaming is about that environment that you put the players in, players versus environment, rather than PvP or PV plot. Um, and environmental stuff means that it does get poked at, pulled at, explored, pressed with 10 foot poles and and people want to know what's going on and they might have magic to do it or skills to do it or more often they'll just have player curiosity but that means the the gm is being asked an awful lot of questions in comparison to uh, just pick a random more modern example a game of vampire the masquerade where you know a, a gm might write up their game report afterwards and say something online lines of i didn't even have to say a word for an hour because the players were busy chatting with each other but I think if you've got an environmental style game, you are constantly being interrogated by your players about the world that you have in your head and behind your screen that you need to transmit to them in some way. And that's what I mean by the GM's got to be on the ball. And if you've got a poor one who just comes back with, I don't know, or uh, let me look that up a lot or whatever, that's that's going to be a bit painful for players who are all trying to instigate something all the time because they're either afraid it's going to kill them or they just want to find out what's what happens when they pull that lever or open that door or taste that water from the fountain it's i think there's there's a lot of back and forth with osr games which i like i think it's a good thing um, but it's a reasonably intense experience um i think that's a good thing and i think uh, it sort of leads me on to the to the next sort of question i was going to ask of you both which is about story and plot uh, because my reading of of the, the OSR tribal runes at the moment is that too much pre-advanced plot or story is is something to be avoided in old school gaming and story is something that's generated by the play and, and best instead to come up with events or environments or situations or locations and, and let the story unfold rather than take people through a chapter by chapter um, screenplay that the GM might have prepared on a few notes of A4 uh, am I talking nonsense or is that a real thing guys what do you think about plot and OSR can they mix they can definitely mix but I think plot is not very useful the games I, I would never uh, I would never make them it's just I, they'll break it you'll, you'll get it broken you'll make this you'll make this silly big fancy thing with a, with a boss and all kinds of little reveals and stuff and it'll just get broken what's the point point of having it <laughs> just have all the bits and and just let um just let it come out give them something that they want give them some kind of idea of where they want to go and then just know what is around and then then let them at it and it's and it's fun for them and it's fun for you because if you're if you're running a plot thing then you know ahead of time what's coming up and what's going on and it's kind of boring to run and it can be boring to play especially when when as a player you get that 
kind of kind of sniff of of kind of their invisible walls all over the place. You know, you just kind of want to smash them when you find out mm. that they exist. Like when when like I don't play very often, but when I do, the worst thing is when there's an NPC that keeps turning up whose job is to give you information and pats on the head. You just want to stab them. You just you just want to kill the crap out of them and see what the game master does, just so something happens. Sound like violent school children. That's what our sound games sound like. It's want to go around smashing things, <laughs> <laughs> pressing yeah. things they tell they got to leave alone. But but the game can survive it. It's trained behaviour, mate. I mean, the game can survive it. That's the thing. The OSR game will absolutely survive you machine gunning all the NPCs that walk into the room one after the other. Of course, it does. But equally, the the game survives the GM machine gunning the players. Uh, which you know we we touched on a bit earlier, but that's a perfectly acceptable thing to have happen. And both of those situations are not acceptable things to have happen in in many, not all, many modern games, which are much more predicated on on the story that you want to unfold at the table. I'll tell you what's interesting from what you were saying now that that question leading and sort of Dan's response as well is perhaps something we can get onto is why does everybody on RPG Net slate OSR and why the story games not really like it and all the rest of it because uh, and that was a, a question from Mick one of our loyal listeners thank you Mick but I think some of the techniques you talk about or things there have come from some of the more uh, indie or story game based things about not having fair plots about just having ideas about uh, discovering the game through play and having story story now not story before and that kind of thing so a lot of the techniques and actions that seem to go on in OSR games are actually things that uh, the more naval gazy types have probably talked to death on more indie forums and this, um, it's curious that there seems to be this kind of divide between a story game and an old school game and, and there still seems to be some kind of antipathy between the two when from what you were just saying then it seems that there's actually a crossover of techniques actually and happened independently and grown organically in each different camp if there are two camps they're just basic things to do I think running games like that is is obvious <laughs> in, in many ways the reason people do like plots and adventures and things is because they grew up with, with old roleplay games doing plots and adventures and things They've been taught, and so they they do it. But a lot of people, like I said way back at the beginning, a lot of people who aren't coming in with any nostalgia or baggage, they're just looking at the thing unpainted by by the past and like, well, this is obviously how how you play these things. And little do they know that's not obviously how they play these things. No, I'm not saying I I I just I came up with this on my own. Obviously, I I, I read and see things and. Yeah, I don't think it's, it's like a some kind of movement and, a, and a, there's no separations and stuff. It's just a big mess. <laughs> yeah, good gaming is good gaming. And, and good gaming is, is just a collection of techniques um, much more than it is particularly the rule system that you've chosen to use to generate your gaming. I know system matters, but it's not the most important thing at the table. It's just one of many things that are important. And and I absolutely believe you when you say that, Gaz, because some of the great techniques that come up in indie games, well, you know, those those techniques may well have been built upon years of experience of playing old school D&D or Tunnels and Trolls or RuneQuest or Call of Cthulhu and just doing it well. And they're more like codified experiences from great games they probably played as young'uns. And it wouldn't necessarily be D&D. It could just as well be the, you know, Call of Cthulhu from the early 80s or 
golden heroes or marvel superheroes or anything like that at all you know those those good techniques turn those into rules and you've got yourself a story game so you know i i think i think good gming and good playing survives no matter what system you throw at it it's helped by some um and it's it's held back by systems sometimes but it will always survive it and it will always do okay in the end um and i think you know there's loads to learn from each other i mean I've been playing D&D for like 30 odd years now but I've never rolled on a treasure table in my life and and the rule books tell me I should but I don't does that make me an indie gamer probably not but it does mean I'm prepared to you know pick something rather than roll for it because I feel like doing it which is probably probably written down in a story game somewhere as an advanced GMing technique I don't know <laughs> but I don't think it's that unusual I think there's way more in common across the spectra of games than there is that keeps them apart and I, and I just genuinely get quite cheesed off with the tribalism that, that that seems to suggest that one style of gaming is better than another and it comes from every side aimed at the opposition all the time i just don't think there is any opposition really yeah it's just the internet and people being shit really. <laughs> it's just what it is you should try playing fourth edition D and sides. <laughs> and then there's a self-loathing as well there <laughs> <laughs> there is that Okay, yeah, well, I, I don't think we're going to be able to answer why there's this antipathy and why people feel the need to tell someone else they're wrong about what they're playing. I don't think, well, to answer the question, the mixed stated, mate, I don't think there is a huge amount of antipathy on RPG Net. It's a place I spend a reasonable amount of time. There's an awful lot of people post on RPG Net, more than any other game inside that I'm aware of, and you've got all shades of spectrums of opinion. Um, D20 Gaming has got its own forum for goodness sake and there's all kinds of people on there some of which i wouldn't want to share house space with and some of which i would love to have a pint with and there's a massive amount of opinion on there i don't see the osr stuff getting a kick in i really don't uh, maybe i'm looking in the wrong places i see everything <laughs> getting a kick in <laughs> at various points from someone and i see everything getting a lot of love too it's a pretty heavily moderated site but there's, I, I haven't brought up the front page today, but that's a rare day for me. But if I did, I bet there's probably half a dozen threads on there about reasonably old school stuff. I think seeing threads about new school stuff is perhaps going to happen because it's new and that's where people's questions come from. But there's plenty of OS. I, I, I don't think Mick is right on that. I think he might be showing his prejudice a little bit, perhaps, or, or maybe feeling defensive if he's had some bad experiences. But... You know, I, I don't think it's true. The, the only problem with places like RPG Net and these these big places is that they they will always tend towards the vanilla and the limp for the most part. Nothing exciting will come out of these big piles of people. You want it to be small and focused, I think. Yeah, good point. I, I think that that's absolutely the case, and I think you know, G plus is 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 I think I think you mentioned Dan one of the inspirations for you coming to OSR. And that's a place where it's a bit splintered. Sometimes quite hard to find out there's a community for something if you weren't there at the start of it. Mm. But, you know, there's there's like-minded folk to speak to and there's a bunch of creativity that's bubbling away there and it's a great way of sharing it. And Hangouts clearly is is a big deal for the OSR too because uh, it's a way of playing um, with that kind of a Rosetta Stone of gaming that probably everyone's got on a shelf somewhere but you can get into an OSR game on the internet real quick mm. can't you yeah no problem at all the, mm. the good thing about that that is um, about Google Plus is that if there are voices out there that you just can't stand the sound of you can turn them off 
and you don't have some uh, little mini fascists deciding what is acceptable and what is not. You decide what you want to hear, uh, and that's I think that's important. But I I don't I don't edit my Google. I'll add everyone. I'm a big old whore. Uh, even even the voices I can't stand listening to. I I I, I must know what is going on, <laughs> even if they are the worst <laughs> people. I want to know what's happening. Uh, don't know how healthy that is. What would you suggest then? So if if I was a, a, a curious beaver and wanted to find out about OSR, and there's a hell of a lot of OSR stuff out there, and all kinds of stripes and flavors, mm. how would I go about getting involved? What's the best way of working out what's good for me, or who a good person to run a game for me would be, or what to buy? Oh, just um, the important thing is to is to get over the the fear of people because everyone is going to be nice. No, you don't get any of those like stinky stinky cat piss gamers online. You don't have that problem. I mean, it's um, so just just play with people. I've never had a bad experience playing with people with strangers through through that, and I never play. With, I I I cannot stand convention gaming, f- f- for instance. It's just an unpleasant experience all round for me, at least. But Hangout stuff is is great. Everyone's nice and everyone's relaxed because they're in their own home. There's no there's no tension. They're not with their bloody friends. It is just them on their own and you on your own and a bunch of other people on their own, all just playing a game. They're all into it and they all want to be there. Because if you didn't want to be there, you could just turn it off and leave. It's really easy. Yeah, just uh, it's. I suppose if you wanted to get into it, you just find some like central kind of hub people just uh, get all creepy on all the people that they follow and are followed by and just, just grab them all. And I think it's pretty obvious who the, the, the big, big shouty people are that are central to it. Just find one that you like most and steal all their stuff. <laughs> there is a, there's a little bit of pre-reading you can do if you if you want to. Um, something that used to be advised a lot in a, or a few years ago now when the OSR got really kicked off was Either go and dig out Grognardia if you like your reading, uh, which is a blog. It's n- it's not a live blog anymore. It's but it's all still there to access, and um, and that's that's good reading if nothing else. Um, and then there's uh, Matt Finch's Old School Primer, which I think is still a free download. It's worth the read. I don't stand by every word of it personally. You know, I think it's got a couple of things right. I think it's got a couple of things ludicrously wrong, but it's it's exactly that. It's a good primer to what his opinion of what old school gaming is and how to get the best out of it so there's there's some reading to be done if you have a dig around on the internet but but dan's right i mean one of the things about old school gaming is you know free your mind and your dice will follow it's it's not hard to roll six stats and put yourself in an imaginary space and play that's how you find out isn't it there really isn't a huge amount of prep to do you can rock up to osr games dan will tell me if this is wrong but everyone's got house rules but they all kind of come off of the same basic chassis which is you know, you roll up a labyrinth-lord character, it could probably play perfectly well in my Osric game or my Swords and Wizardry game or my basic D&D game or my, even my AD&D game. It doesn't matter that much, and, and Hangouts especially is even less concerned about auditing your character sheet. You know, bring your fighter to the party, and in Dan's game, it doesn't matter if it's level 20 and I'm level 1, <laughs> which is even better news, which is something I've got to try. <laughs> Because you know the, the the game will survive it, and that drop in drop out nature, that really is quite old school. Actually, I mean that's that's what it was like at school. You would just you would find a table to get a spot at in War Games Club, and there'd be six different GMs and and six different types of games. But you would carry your character from one game to another, and that that was part of the fun. I think it's really accessible. Have you heard of um, the flail snails thing at all? 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean that that yeah. kind of that kind of thing. I mean, I don't use it myself. You know, for for anyone who doesn't notice that you have this this character, like you were saying, the tables thing. You have a a flail snails character, and you just you take them to flail snails games. People will say this is a flail snails game. You can bring your flail snails characters. And I mean, there's um there's a an OSR UK Hangouts community. Um, our loyal listener Mick, who sent in a couple of questions for us today, he's uh, he got that set up only a couple of weeks ago. So there's they're putting together calendars for that sort of thing now. And I know that there's virtual conventions and. I, th- I think this does lead us to a, to another point, though, and to Dan's point about conventions. I'm not I'm not sure how much old school stuff gets played at meat space conventions. And guys, that's that's an area of gaming that you know more about than both of us put together. You know, real world conventions out there. How much OSR gaming is going on there? I've tried to run a few games. I've had some luck with signups and mostly filled my games, but it's not been a given. I, I don't think, think it's fairly rare. I don't see a lot of it. Um, mm. Someone like Conception, where it's probably the most role-playing games played of any convention in the UK that I can think of, um, tend to have like Pathfinder Society, or they'll have living games for uh, there's a it Spycraft. I'm not sure if that's still going. There's like a Star Warsy one and some other things. So I've seen definite groups of people who will go with their characters to those sort of events and take them from one scenario to the other. Is the, the sort of thing that you've mentioned, but not really OSR per se it tends to be one off someone will run a Lamentations game or someone will run a or whatever any of those games they've mentioned to be honest but they do tend to just be like one or two sessions per slot I see there doesn't seem to be a massive amount of people running to conventions to play these games maybe it's because like Dan mm-hmm. says the, the environment's not as conducive perhaps I don't know or it's just easy enough to play in your house online so why bother going to a convention to try and get it because you can get experience wherever you want but then I don't see that many Delta Green games run away you know pick one if it's not D&D or Cthulhu or it's one of the, the main games a lot of the games at conventions get one or two sessions of it run three or four that's true that's a fair point mate it's, it's a very fair point actually if you if you want to pick on any sort of section of game in it or even just say, say sci-fi unless you're going to a specific convention or a specific day, actually they can be very thin yeah. on the ground, can't they? Maybe it's that doesn't mean that the OSR ain't happening, but it might be completely the opposite to that. Um, but yeah, when I've put up, put up OSR games at conventions, as I say, I've had players for it, um, uh, although often it's been a kind of like a, a nostalgia trip or a, a let's give it a go for a laugh rather than take it, you know, maybe as seriously as you would do another game. Um, so it's it's not really been a massive success for me running OSR games at, at real conventions. Not sure I'd do it again on that. I think if you just put a and D game up, you'll get signups. I know OSR is just another flavour of D and D, really, isn't it? So it's 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 always going to get people. Mm. I don't, but it, it feels like it's almost the vanilla default option, even though something like implementations or whatever might not be. Uh, like a lot of people go and they'll always sign up for a Cthulhu game because they know Cthulhu and they know what they're getting. I think it's pretty similar with OSR and D&D and that sort of thing. If they don't say anything else that's spangly or exciting, perhaps, they go, well, we'll go for a safe option. We'll have a game of D&D or a game of Traveller or whatever their standard option is. So maybe it's just not... Because there's so much of it, because it's so easily available and so broad and wide and there's so much stuff, it's perhaps for a convention-going person not as exciting, maybe? Or it's exciting to run, maybe mm. if, you, if if that's something you do all the time, you might want to go to a convention and do something different. Yeah, I, I, I think that's fair, mate. And I, and from just you know, casually perusing the menu at conventions, whether online or in real time, you, you tend to see a, a, 
I, I don't want to put a number on it, but there's a healthy chunk of games that were released in the last six months, and that's because people bought them and they got excited by it and they wanted to run it, and that's not unreasonable to be fair. And and you, there's only so much time that anybody has. And if Night Witches is the new hotness, I think that's always going to get more play than maybe Top Secret from 1982. It, and I think that's just natural, you know. Although arguably you could play the same scenario with both. Well, they're they're, <laughs> they're quite odd. Though. It's interesting you mentioned them too. I'm going to Germany in a couple of weeks to the Kraken, and uh, one of their guests is the guy who wrote Top mm. Secret for SSI. And I've not heard of him do anything for like you know twenty or thirty years, but for some reason he's a guest of honor at that convention. I've no idea why. At night, which is is the other interesting one, because people played it like to death before it came out, when it was in playtest or when it was you know it had funded on Kickstarter. But you know what? Since it's actually been published and people have got the books in their hands, I've seen one or two games run. There was far more when it wasn't actually published. Mm. So that's a really curious thing as well. I think people are mm. quite flighty to just um, they decide quite close to a convention what they want to run or play and then that happens depending on what the current mood is Dan mentioned this right oh, ages ago in this conversation and I forgot to come back to it and I'll do it now because what you've just said guys reminds me it's I think there's it's quite freeing and liberating to get off of that conveyor belt of buying new stuff all the time to try and re-spark the game you had when you first got started as a teenager I've done it. I've got gaming shelves that are absolute testament to that, you know, trying to find that perfect wave as a surfer. And and it is really liberating sometimes to go, do you know what, I won't get that new book. What I'll do instead is I'll just pull off the book off the shelf that I know, or maybe not even pull the book off the shelf because I know it so well from back in the day that instead I can just focus myself on the content, on the adventure I want to run on Friday night, or, you know, the article I want to write for the Undercroft or whatever it is. And and I know, to be fair, guys, tell me if I've got this wrong, you're, you're at that place with Savage Worlds and have been for a long time. You know, that's, that's what you would go to because you can just concentrate on the good stuff rather than having to learn a new system, even if it is brilliant at producing a particular type of experience. It's more time learning. Yeah, I've got Savage Worlds up in my toolkit system for 10 years or whatever it is. I mean, it really is a good toolkit system. It does... System matters to me more than to you, probably. So when there's things... Like in most OSR games, mm. or the, the ones I've played, you can't make a cold shot to like hit someone in the leg or something, or that you know it's just not in the rules. But uh, I think the style of the game there is that you just say you can, or you, you give someone a minus two and say they can shoot them where they want, or or whatever yeah. it is. Whereas I like Savage because it's complete and has all that kind of stuff in it, and I don't think the games are any are different particularly for that, depending on whether it's written down in the rule book or the GM makes it up and everybody's happy with it, but. Yeah, I, I'm definitely one for. I've run it for all kinds of different settings, and I want more want the meat of the game and the the cool stuff that's going to happen, and like the fact that the system's just reliable and runs there as a well-oiled engine in the background and delivers the things I want it to. So I think in terms of style of game, it's, it probably is a little bit OSR because um, well, that that game I've run a couple of sessions off for you, Baz, uh, uh, the RuneQuest. I wanted to do old school RuneQuest stuff. But didn't mm. really want to go through the effort of relearning how RuneQuest 2 works from 1987 or whatever it was. So I just use Savage and we'll, we'll play some RuneQuest. So you're getting all the cool RuneQuest stuff, from my point of view, without having to worry about what system or how you hit someone with your axe. No, I think that's fair. No, 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 it's, it's, it's fine. But I, I think you're right. I mean, I'd be interested on Dan's take on this because I don't think the people who are running old school D&D are beholden to all of the rules from old school D&D. I think it's a style more than it is... Um, uh, slavery to that system I mean nobody used encumbrance back in the day and they don't use it now 
so you know that, that that doesn't mean you have to do that does it it's it, i think it is more a feeling and more a style i don't know i mean i think dan's already answered this one i don't i don't you think he's admitted to not knowing the rules as well as his players do oh, yeah. but there's 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 huge chunks i mean old school D includes advanced dungeons and dragons for goodness sake all right so it's not necessarily a rules light proposition but there's no there's no slavish adherence to the rules that i see in osr if anything it's kind of free and loose and ask the gm or we'll make something up and it's rulings not rules and you get to that stage by knowing the rules so well that you can forget about them perhaps yeah no i think that's important um the whole being able to forget the rules thing and like um like you were saying about uh savage worlds i think that kind of what you're doing with it that's exactly what the whole osr thing is uh i'm not too keen on on the osr designation thing it encourages kind of this this tribal thinking like you mentioned before like i wouldn't i wouldn't really identify very much with it i think it's a bit i don't know internet-y start making <laughs> these groups and labeling and stuff if anything it's 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 diy i, I that is that is what what i do is, is that is what lots of people i i play and work alongside do it's just diy you just just make things i'm not like in any way attached to dungeon dragons if if tomorrow i got bored of of you know, the whole dungeon dragons lamentations thing i would i would leave it with no with no bad feelings business as usual just just a different color i don't i don't think dungeon no. dragons is, is important especially to it it just happens to be where it is savage worlds could i mean i've, I've played savage worlds a little bit and like something like that, I mean, yeah, it totally could have or could still generate something itself like that. It's, it's a nice static point that a lot of people get on with. So there's no reason people couldn't do the same thing. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you on that, Dan. I think OSR as a term is is vague enough to be almost useless, but it's more of a term for publishing shorthand than it is necessarily for what sort of game you're going to get. Um, and that's fine it's slightly weird and ironic that it's all about DIY but it's producing so much bloody stuff for you to buy <laughs> I could fill my shelves with OSR stuff and that's hardly DIY is it it's more like you know buy it yourself <laughs> okay so have we squeezed the juice out of the OSR over the last hour I'm, I'm beginning to feel we might have done uh, perhaps we'll uh, we'll go back to the beginning of the conversation and start again in an OSR <laughs> style yeah why not so I think if the question was what would the smart party do with the OSR the answer has become evident that we would get Dan on who's been doing it for a couple of years to tell us exactly what what it looks like from his perspective and take Gaz's perspective as someone who doesn't necessarily dive in with both feet on the OSRs but been around long enough to know what it is and my perspective which is to remain confused but still love D&D which doesn't seem to be necessarily what you have to be to be into the OSR. Are we any wiser? Probably not, but we are an hour older, and I think we'll have to take that for today. So, um, Dan, I want to thank you ever so much for coming on to our podcast, mate. It's been a pleasure having you on. Yeah, I love this. It. Good. It's good fun. And Gaz, as always, mate, you know, thank you very much for your contributions and for remembering to call out Mick as well. So Mick sent in some, some fantastic questions, which I'm sure we haven't covered, but we no doubt will again in the future. So, uh, so Gaz, um, over you for some final words, mate. Well, I've got one final question, if we can squeeze one in. I, I did ask someone quite recently, actually, for, for an OSR game and said, can you give me a one-shot? Uh, and he said it probably wouldn't give you the flair, it wouldn't work. So what do you think, Dan? Can you get a one-shot Google Plus session and get a good flavour of OSR, or is it something you need to play several games off? Yeah, I think several games is is, is, is more the flavour of it, really. I mean, you can get the general gist of it, I suppose, but the 
the OSR is in the, the long-term kind of suffering and weirdness of the whole thing. Okay, so I'm going to have to sign up for a few sessions. That's no problem. Yeah. <laughs> I've got time. You will do, you will do. <laughs> okay, thanks very much then for your time, Dan. Uh, and as always, thanks to the listeners. If you've got any questions or comments and would like to tell us what OSR is, what we've missed, what we could get into, where we should go, feel free to comment in all the usual places. And that's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening to What Would the Smart Party Do? Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. Thank you.